2016 happened. Suddenly, everyone was running around like headless chickens about Cambridge Analytica. And I was in the corner going, on the one hand, it's nice that you've all woken up to this. But on the other hand, I think you're mistaken in seeing this as some amazingly powerful thing. And it's certainly not new. And and people I know who have done really deep research into this, all of them say that there's actually very little evidence that that, that kind of campaigning had any serious impact on which way people voted and not much impact on whether they bothered to vote. We realised we had this completely wrong. People don't go on social media to interact and exchange ideas. They go on social media to build their identities. The, the technology enables these things to happen, but they, that only happens because politics is already very tribal and very much driven by, I want to shore up my political identity by showing that I have the right beliefs. Esther Jay, the mother of Brianna Jay, has called for a social media ban for under 16s. Brianna, of course, was the 16-year-old transgender girl who was brutally murdered in a premeditated attack. This is a case among a growing chorus of political leaders from across the world are demanding action against social media and technology more broadly, from the UK's online safety bill to the US recent congressional hearings involving Mark Zuckerberg. Yet despite all this criticism, it remains unclear how much technology is really to fault for all our problems. Welcome back to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash and I'm the IA's Director of Public Policy and Communications. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question. Today's question, should children be banned from social media? To discuss, I'm very excited to be welcoming Tamandra Harkness. She's a writer, broadcaster, and comedian. She presents documentaries on Radio 4, contributes to online publications like Unheard, is the author of a previous book, um, Demystifying Big Data. But in fact, we're probably going to focus more today on her new forthcoming book, Technology Is Not The Problem. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with this case about banning under-16s from social media um, following that very tragic murder of Brianna. What seems to be going on here, in, in your view? Why have we jumped from... Uh, a very terrible criminal act to let's ban social media for under 16s. Well, I mean, there's a broad thing going on, which is that whenever a tragedy happens, the urge is to try and get some good out of it and to find a concrete thing that you could do that mm. would prevent it happening again. So, I mean, in that sense, it's completely understandable, I think, that the parents want to do that. But then, of course, the flip side is policymakers and politicians will jump on it to do a thing they wanted to do anyway, which in this case is to push still further on technology firms. And as you said in your introduction, I think the online safety bill, now the Online Safety Act, is is all part of the same kind of package of wanting to solve social problems by regulating technology. Yeah, I've, I find it intriguing how much attention these kind of demands are getting at the moment, particularly the, the banning the under-16s. It doesn't seem like this murder could have been prevented by not having kids on social media. In fact, social media in the digital sense didn't seem to have anything to do with this case whatsoever. Now, there was reporting that the killers looked on the dark web at videos. They used messaging services. I guess you could ban those from under-16s, although preventing under-16s from looking at videos and messaging people does seem like quite an extreme response. And I think the contrast to this, of course, is that there was all this reporting about how Brianna was quite active on social media, how she 
found networks of other young trans people that she connected with using social media and technology in in a positive way. So you seem to almost get kind of like kind of like a fact free focus on social media. I kind of it's almost reminiscent of the David Amos case from a few years ago, um, where we saw this terrible killing by an Islamist terrorist of an MP that then became we must ban anonymity on social media. Yes, I mean that was absolutely bizarre. But again, that was that was part of that was all the build up to getting the online safety bill, which torturously went through Parliament for a long, long time. Uh, it, trying to get that through, well, there was a jumping on absolutely anything that could be pulled in, however tangential, to kind of justify it. So the idea that uncivil political argument on social media was somehow a contributor to, as you say, a, a, a terrorist who had plans to kill an MP and, in fact, I think had targeted somebody else mm. who then didn't turn up at their office. Uh, and the idea that that would somehow have been influenced by social media is is completely bizarre. I mean, the online safety bill, I think, is a particularly interesting example because it comes out of this idea that, well, it really comes out of the idea that the world should be safe, uh, uh, which clearly it isn't, it can never be. Uh, and then looking at the online world to say, well, this is relatively new and in a sense controllable in that, you know, you can kind of see where it happens and where it comes from. Maybe we can make that safe, which is a, a completely doomed enterprise in my view. And so this is why the bill that came out of it was quite incoherent and unenforceable and riddled with problems. So the idea that you ban under 16s from social media, you, I think comes out of the same impulse that there are negative things that are going on in young people's lives uh, with some you know, broadly very bad effects. I mean, this particular terrible, terrible case possibly would have happened in another era anyway in a different form. We don't know. But, but you know, broadly there are negative things going on in young people's lives. And so there's an impulse to say, okay, who or what can we blame? Who or what can we regulate to stop that happening? Social media is relatively new in young people's lives. I mean, certainly... People, you know, I'm really grateful that I grew up before social media because, you know, all my terrible teenage transgressions are not recorded <laughs> and uh, and cannot be relayed to the rest of the world. But so I think when people look at, when older people look at young people growing up with this and think this is so different from the way I grew up, it's so different from the way my social relationships developed and took place. Uh, I don't really understand it. Surely this must be bad. Whereas the actual research that's going on, and there's some, there's some very good research being done. Somebody called Amy Auburn mm. at Oxford, I think, does brilliant research. There's actually another great book just out, which you should um, try and get the author on. It's called Pete Actuals. He's just written a very good, very scholarly look at what is the research around um, social media and especially young people. And he says... There isn't nearly enough of it, but what there is doesn't by any means point to it being all negative. Yeah, was... People get a lot of positive things, like you say, out of interacting, finding friends they might not make otherwise. Yeah, there seems to be an entire kind of impracticality to this idea of, of banning social media for young people. I, I mean, as if young people who are, even by the critics of social media, addicted to it, or perhaps uh, an alternative phrasing is that they enjoy using social media, that they connect with their friends that they express themselves that they like making videos for tiktok 
that they're suddenly just going to say, okay, whatever, I'm done. I'm not going to use this at all. It seems likely, more likely that you're going to probably push them to start either more concerning platforms that are less moderated and less controllable by the UK government, um, or otherwise uh, you're going to have kind of some kind of mass non-compliance going on here. I think, yeah, and the other thing is, okay, you could take smartphones away from teenagers, but since almost everything we do now involves using a computer one way or another, they would still spend time on computers. Mm. They would still be able to search for things. Um, and their social lives would just get more inconvenient. But having said that, I mean, I think there are certain things that wanting to ban social media for the under-16s reflects a kind of lacks and problems in other areas. So, for example, there is that real sense, I think, among parents that they simply don't know what their teenage kids are doing. They don't know who they're interacting with. They don't know how they're interacting. They don't know what the you know what they're looking at online uh, because and they feel that this is okay. This is a real gap here. I can't protect them here. I don't know what they're doing. I know they're not out in the park drinking cider with their friends. Not that I necessarily did that as a teenager, but that is definitely the kind of thing that my generation of teenagers are doing. So maybe they're not doing that. But I don't know what they are doing up in their room on their phone. Now, you could say, I mean, clearly, physically, un unless something starts taking place on the phone, that then leads to something else, which has happened. Then, you know, obviously, they're physically safer, but but you don't know what, what they're up to. And, and I think this reflects a general kind of sense among parents that... There's a big gap between them and their own children and they don't know what is going on in the children's lives and they don't understand it. They don't feel they have any authority and they don't feel that they have the authority to ask and say, you know, who are you Who are you talking to? Who are your friends? Where are you going? So there are, of course, technological tools that parents can use that exist. If, if a parent doesn't want their child to access social media, they actually can give them a phone, put on the parental controls and lock them from accessing social media. Now, I suspect that's not particularly common because their kids want to use social media. And at some point, you have to kind of pull off the band-aid. You have to say, well, if you say no social media for under 16s, then they'll turn 17 and they'll have access to social media. <laughs> and at some point, the, if they're going to have issues with social media, it's, it's going to happen sooner or later. Um, as, as part of the Brianna case as well, um, her mother called for basically spyware on every child's phone that they, if certain words are searched, then the parents would be notified about it. Uh, under the idea that um, the, the killers in this case uh, were looking up things that were obviously quite concerning and, and uh, illegal content online, and if only their parents known about it. Now, of course, there were other red flags. You know, one of the killers had previously poisoned an, another a student at a, at a at a pupil at another school, and that wasn't told to their subsequent school. So, you know, there were there were more obvious red flags that this child was extremely unwell and had and personality disorder issues, potentially autism, all the kind of range of issues that, that might lead someone um, down a very dark path to murdering one of their their pupils. But it, it's it's like the, we want to use technology as the solution here. I could kind of empathize with that. You know, you don't want that. But at the same time, it, it's, it's almost like very 1984-esque. You know, why, why don't we, we, we'd prevent all domestic violence by putting a camera in literally every single um, person's bedroom. But of course, we accept that some people are going to do things that we don't want them to in their bedrooms. We're not going to try to monitor and control them all the time. Um, maybe maybe kids should have less rights to their kind of privacy, but I think kids probably also do have some rights to their privacy and not have everything tracked by their parents. I don't know how you balance those instincts, but to be, because you know you, you say you, I think you're right. Parents feel like they've lost control, but I'm not. 
I'm not sure parents ever had entire control over what their kids did. No, they didn't. I mean, certainly my parents, um, dad, if you're listening to this, you had no idea what I was getting up to at the time. It's probably for the best. Uh, no, they didn't. And and but again, I think that reflects a change in society that the expectation that everything ought to be safe and everything ought to be controllable, mm. which I think is a is an expectation that has gradually grown over the past few decades. So I think that has changed because you know, in general, actually, young people are not less safe than they were. Uh, but I think you're also right about the the fact that if we didn't let young people onto social media until they were 16, then where would they learn? It's like, you know, if you mm. never let your kids out to cross the road on their own, at what point are they going to learn how to cross the road safely? Because at the moment, what we do is you go out with your kids, they they stay with you, they observe adults, they gradually learn. Uh, and, you know, that's how they become safe is by is by doing things. And I think there's an argument that social media is the same when it comes to spyware i mean you're right I, I think there are already a lot of controls there that parents can use and i certainly know there are parents who say uh that you're fine here's your smartphone but i i want to see what you're doing on it and it's only private in as much as i at any point have access to your phone and i can look at it mm. and see what you've been doing what messages you've been exchanging just so that you know that that's the that's the limit and then obviously as the child gets older gradually they remove that and I mean that that seems like a much more sensible approach than to try and do a blanket ban and but again it's this I think that yeah you're right the resort to technological solution the idea that by ubiquitous surveillance that was automated somehow you'd eliminate these problems but but you wouldn't you need you need humans to have some judgment and some observation and to say I'm really worried about this kid I want to I'm, I'm back to this idea about kind of how safety culture has has kind of infiltrated online policymaking because I think you're absolutely right when it comes to the online uh, safety act. A lot of the a lot of the the kind of design of that act in terms of duties of care is very much almost borrowed from like kind of like a workplace safety dynamic where you have a duty to ensure the safety of your employees. But then what you're what you're doing the online safety act is you're creating a duty on a digital platform to ensure that when I communicate to you so things that I do to you, you have a duty to make sure I don't cause you like a, a, some kind of harm, particularly if you're a child. Um, of course, that flies in the face of this whole idea about free range parenting and needing adversity in, and in order to build strength. But it does seem like that kind of safety idea has been applied in a way that it's, it was never really meant to be applied in the past, which is to kind of like speech um, and, and the, the ideas that you like, you need to be safe from a kind of like a dangerous idea that a child harmful idea a child might come across now i thought there are harmful ideas that children come across and you probably don't want them to um and and uh, should be banned on on major social media platforms but it just it's kind of like where do you think that kind of like twist has come from to this this kind of like focus on on like safety as as the end goal and purpose of well, well that is that's a no small questions here yeah <laughs> yeah then that's that's a really huge question that i, that I think is really interesting uh, I, I think it is a shift in our culture over the last, say, 30, 40 years. And I suppose the potted answer is that I think as other big ideas have melted away that motivated our culture and other big values that we could cohere around, I think we were kind of left with safety as, well, surely at least we can all agree that it's better to be safe. Especially um, for the kids, they, they must. Well, especially for the kids, but 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 I think it is much. Basically. But I think it is much broader than mm. that. Um, and 
yeah, things are melting away of other ideas, but also a general sense of a maybe more fearful attitude to the world that the hope, the, the kind of the faith in progress that we got from the Enlightenment and the hope that basically civilization would keep getting better was replaced by a sense that everything was a bit chaotic and up for grabs and therefore anything can happen. And also a loss of faith in humans being able to cope with things and being able to do new things that would make things better and a sense that, oh no, everything humans do makes things worse. <laughs> and you think bring things together and then that that really, you you get a society that is obsessed with risk and trying to get rid of risk. I mean, I thought I thought COVID was very interesting because it looked as if a very, very fearful attitude and a ridiculous demand that the government should keep everybody safe during a pandemic appeared to come from nowhere. But I, because I was already thinking about these things, I went, no, it hasn't come from nowhere. What happened was it was already there and the pandemic just precipitated it out of solution, out of solution in yeah. society, it made it made it solid. Yeah. But, but you're right. I mean, to come back to your point about kids, though, I think it's absolutely right that we treat kids differently and that's why you have age limits on things like cigarettes, alcohol, driving, voting. Like, kids are kids. They don't... They're not ready to independently negotiate the world and we should protect them. So I do think that age limits on access to particular social media things and so on is is perfectly reasonable. How you enforce them technologically is a whole other can of worms. But but I think it's a reasonable thing to say you don't give children the freedom online that you give to adults. But of course, practically, it does need to be a gradual process because they're going to live in a very online world. And at some point, they have to be able to negotiate it. Yeah. The other practical issue, of course, is, and, and there's a lot of this in the Online Safety Act, which is this kind of age verification, which is to say, if, if you want to access a version of the internet that is beyond what is child-friendly, in the government's mind, more or less, they want some kind of robust process of checking whether or not you're an, a, an adult. So therefore, in order to protect children, we need to kind of like undermine the privacy rights of adults that enter a driver's license or credit card or some kind of other age-based proof in order to access the full range of the internet. And then you're kind of undermining adults' freedom in order to protect an idea of children that whether or not that's practical or, or wise or yeah. respect adults' rights at the same time. Exactly. I mean, that is an absolute dilemma and a minefield. And I have I have no idea if it would be possible to solve it while, as you say, respect to the freedom of adults so adults don't have to keep proving they're adults uh in some way that's inevitably yeah. going to be intrusive online in some way yeah even even in the cases where it's most kind of on the face of justifiable like pornography no, nobody thinks children should have access to pornography um or, or should be looking at that kind of material but at the same time the government has pushed this for many years now this age, online age verification on the assumption that it's possible technologically to in, enforce which is questionable since a lot of foreign sites aren't going to comply with it. But even UK kind of domestic sites, it, it's just going to be a whole minefield of adults having to constantly identify and connect their identity. It's, yeah, it, well, it's that thing. It's the thing between identification and verification that is there a way where you can verify that you're over 18 with also without also identifying yourself? Because obviously that's what you ideally mm. want. It's like when you... <laughs> I was actually in the cab on the way here. We're talking to the cab driver who was is old enough to have his um his free bus passes and he he said he was out on a train with him and his wife both of their free bus passes and this uh, guy came along the inspector came along and Dan said to his wife um you know can you prove 
you're old enough for that. Uh, and then said to him, no, you're right, sir. You don't need to prove it. <laughs> and he was like, well, that's that's a bit insulting. But It's like the moment you stop getting uh, age. It's not like age for alcohol. Yeah. Oh, I know. I can't believe you've reached that age yet, Mackie. You look terribly young. <sighs> but, but exactly. But So in that kind of thing, we are able to, in person, you know, if I go into a, a beer shop, they de- they can look at me and they know I'm over 18. Um, they, so they don't not need to know who I am. Yeah. They only need to know I'm over 18. But it's very difficult to see online how you can do that. And, uh, I mean, my God, if somebody could work out a way to do that without having to identify who you are to anybody, they should win the Nobel Prize. Well, yeah, the government, the government um, keeps on telling us te- technology exists. They, they do this quite a lot. I mean, they do this in the case of um, messaging as well, where rightfully so they want to ensure the child exploitation material isn't being messaged around between people. Um, and then they tell us, uh, well, it's possible to both scan people's messages as well as keep them encrypted. Yeah. And again, it's this kind of like, it's a, such a fundamental tension that you, you, once you start scanning people's messages, they're not end-to-end encrypted anymore now, are they? Well, you, you can scan somebody's message to see if the image they're sending is the same as another image you've already got. got. So you can, you can do that without unencrypting it, but then by definition, you know what it is. But but you're still saying, I'm going to decide what things are going to match, be in my pattern matching thing. So it's, I mean, it's the equivalent to the automatic facial recognition where you walk past the van and it scans your face. And if your face matches one of the hashed faces in its database, then it goes, ah, no, can we want to talk to you so you can prove you're not this person? So I'm just stepping back a uh, um a little bit further, uh, thinking about how we've gone into this point where technology is very much um, at the centre of what we, I suppose, blame for, for social problems. Because I think there's been quite an interesting shift. We, about, let's say, 10, 15 years ago, there was a lot of hope and optimism about social media. We had the Arab Spring, we have Obama, uh, both seen as kind of successful cases of of using sort of this this new technology to empower people and um, and help the world. Now, I think that very much shifted after 2016 with Brexit and Trump and the whole narrative changed um, and it suddenly became, rather than technology good, technology bad. I'm wondering if, if you see that kind of in the, the same way as me and, and kind of explain what you think what, what went on there. Is it as simple as these things that people perceive were bad politically happened and therefore somebody must be to blame at social media? Yes and no. I mean, yes, fundamentally, yes. But I think that reveals a couple of interesting things. I mean, I was, so I was writing the first book, uh, Big Data Does Size Matter, in 2015. And at that point, it was already clear how politics was using digital media and personalized messaging for marketing in Mm. the same way as other marketing. And so I wrote about this and I was saying, well, look, you know, I think this is bad because it's reducing politics from being a public battle of ideas to being uh, a marketing, a personalized marketing exercise. And this is, this is a bad thing for politics. Uh, and then 2016 happened uh, and suddenly everyone was running around like headless chickens about Cambridge Analytica. And I was at the corner going, on the one hand, it's nice that you've all woken up to this because frankly, no one was interested when I was writing about it. But on the other hand, I think you're mistaken in seeing this as some amazingly powerful thing. And it's certainly not new. There was this, this very odd thing that somehow 
Cambridge Analytica, who were 99% smoke and mirrors, had invented this all-powerful technology that had taken over people's minds and made them vote for something. And I had to keep referring people back to 2012 when the Obama, the second Obama campaign, was very explicit about how it was using data, social media data, how they were they were pulling people's uh, Facebook contacts out and using them as contacts. I mean, it's like the stuff that the Obama campaigns were openly using were extraordinarily intrusive and privacy. Uh, like, but nobody seemed to care, right? But nobody cared because it was Obama. Yeah, there was a great Guardian article in 2012 saying, oh, that big data is winning this for Obama and how wonderful it is. And, and literally all these things about, oh, they go into people's Facebook profiles and then they pull out all their contacts and mm. use this and they get around privacy uh, by targeting uh, television adverts, cable television adverts to voters. And, and this whole very exuberant Guardian article, there was one paragraph going, well, of course, there's a few privacy issues, but, but you know, hey, it's Obama. And then, yeah, and then with Trump wins, it's a whole like, oh, no, this is all evil and manipulative. So I think, yeah, I mean, you could just be really blunt and say people didn't like those results, Brexit and Trump, and they wanted an explanation that didn't involve them saying we failed to win the argument. Because, you know, that that was, to my mind, that, that was the real answer. It's like, well, you failed to win the argument. That's why you lost the vote. And so it's on you. If you don't want to lose next time, you have to come up with better arguments. But they didn't want that. And the other thing is, I think it just reflects a very low opinion of voters. It reflects the idea that voters are seen as easily manipulated, easily swayed by automated advertising. Whereas, you know, politics has always been a process of trying to persuade people and win people over. So there's always been very broad brush marketing techniques. But it also comes down to... You know, if you want to win the vote and not the other person, you have to come up with more convincing arguments. And if people vote against you, you need to find out what are their reasons for voting against you. You can't just say, oh, they saw all these Facebook ads, which were manipulative. It's, it's a complete cop-out. Yeah, it seemed for a lot of people who just couldn't, simply couldn't comprehend why anyone would vote for Trump or why anyone would vote for Brexit. The, the classic being, I literally have no, none of my friends voted for Brexit. This can't be real. This didn't happen. I'm sure some of their friends did vote for Brexit and didn't admit to it, but they, yeah. they know literally, they have no, like, there is such a social bubble mm. where they they don't interact with people who have a different argument to them. So when they hear alternative arguments, they kind of dismiss them and how to re respond to them. And it's much easier to then say, well, of course, the reason why is because they were manipulated by demigods and they were manipulated <laughs> by social media algorithms. And Cambridge Analytica came out as a kind of useful scapegoat. I mean, they were doing something that, as you said, was pretty standard by the Obama era with a whole bunch of kind of pseudoscientific claims about personality types, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I don't think anything that the Brexit campaign did was particularly creative. They just segmented the um, online marketplace for ads and sent people ads that they thought be, might be most effective to them. Yeah. Um, it does... was not particularly sophisticated. It was certainly no more than other campaigns or parties were doing. I'm going to be surprised if the Rem yeah. Remain campaign didn't do the same thing. If they didn't do the same thing, then the Remain it was like a failure of the Remain campaign <laughs> to be as competent as the Leave campaign. I mean, that's what it seems like to me. And the same with, um, I mean, Clinton was meant to have the top-notch best digital campaign in the world. I mean, I don't think Obama was meant to be that good at social media. Mm -hmm. And then it became about Russia and Russian disinformation and um, and Delhi. There was a Russian effort that was, that was pro-Trump, but there's no evidence that that actually swayed the vote. Yeah, and and people I know who have done 
really deep research into this, all of them say that there's actually very little evidence that that, that kind of campaigning had any serious impact on which way people voted and not much impact on whether they bothered to vote. And th those are the two things. I mean, I've, I interviewed for the new book, I interviewed somebody who was basically head of data-driven marketing for the Democrats for a while and literally edited the book about how to use um, online marketing, uh, how to do digital data-driven marketing. And and he said, well, uh, <laughs> he said, there's two things you want to do. You want to find out uh, are people going to vote for you and how likely are they to actually turn out and vote? And then and then you decide, are you trying to persuade them or are you trying to mobilise them? And that's and that's what you do and this is how you do it. He was delightfully open. But he also said, when I asked him about Cambridge Analytica, and he said, yeah, no, I was amazed that became a thing because I knew it was, I, th I think he used a ruder word than smoke and mirrors, but uh, he said, and I knew that because I, I was working for Facebook at the time, so I knew they didn't have access to that data. And also, I had worked for another outfit a few years before that had been using those methods, and I knew that you could no longer get access to that data. <laughs> so, you know, I knew it was, I knew it was nonsense. There's actually there's some really to talk about your your thing of people saying I simply can't believe this happened because nobody I know said they were going to vote this way. There's a guy called Chris Bale who's at Duke University. He's written a lovely book called The Social Media Prism. I'm sorry, I'm just giving you all a reading list here. <laughs> um, and and he is he it's, it's delightful because he runs a thing called the Polarization Lab. So he's interested in political polarization. And he was one of those people. He couldn't understand how he had had no idea that Trump was going to win. And he was the classic like, well, obviously we're doing something wrong here because... You know, it, there were no signals in my social media that this was going to happen. So we need to go and do some research, see what I'm missing. And he started off with the um, filter bubble hypothesis. And they, were, and they were literally doing practical experiments, getting people on opposing sides to interact. And he thought, if we get people out of their filter bubbles and they interact with opponents, then, you know, the polarization will break down. It doesn't work, does it? It was the opposite. Yeah. They dug in. And so he said, we realized we had this completely wrong. People don't go on social media to interact and exchange ideas. They go on social media to build their identities. And so if you're building your identity and part of your identity is that you are attached to these ideas, then when someone disagrees with you, they're not just challenging your ideas. They're actually challenging your identity group that you feel you belong to. I thought the other interesting part as well, when, when people have tried to look into this kind of idea of filter bubble, it's not that you only receive information that supports your existing view. It's that when you see something your opponents have said um, that's showed to you, it's probably going to be a slightly caricatured version of your opponents. It's going to be like the worst version of your opponents. But basically, it's not that you're not engaging with your opponents. It's that you're they're making you really angry. That like you're, you're, you're not, you're, Your filter bubble is not just people who agree with you. It's actually seeing people you disagree with um, presenting their arguments that just gets you more angry and more riled up than even just being in your own filter bubble. Yeah, exactly. And so the it's it, a lot of the response, instead of responding going, oh, no, maybe you have a point there, I should consider it. It's all about how can I respond to this in a way that shores up my sense of belonging and shows my people on my tribe that I am responding in the right way. And if I get those other people angrier, well, all the better. Uh, yeah, his, his, his work is very interesting and... And, and that again, that thing about it's not the, the technology enables these things to happen, but they, that only happens because 
politics is already very tribal and very much driven by I want to shore up my political identity by showing that I have the right beliefs and I belong here and I'm going to say the right things that show that I belong in this tribe and not that tribe. And obviously social media is the perfect medium for that. But but the, the polarisation and the identity-driven way of seeing politics was already there. The tribalization. I mean, I think it's I think it's Nal Ferguson who um when when he wrote I think he wrote a book about this probably a little bit more than five years ago. I mean, he really dated kind of information technology and divisions uh, back to the printing press. He 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 makes the point that you know we we got the printing press great loads of access to information, but you then get the Reformation, which is only enable only possible because of the printing press and literally you know hundreds of years of war and violence between different groups who are who have been polarized. So this idea of polarization can be traced back to the mere capacity to have different ideas. I think this probably speaks more something something human about our kind of tribal tendencies. But I think you get this again and again. You get this with radio um, being used. There's this, there's this you know idea in the history that well the reason why you had the rise of fascism was because of radio, um, and and that that should be blamed because you could speak straight to people. Now of course the contrary to that is FDR used radio for um, nice liberal American reasons. Um, and then you have the same thing with kind of concerns about television. So it seems like we really have this, um, I guess, a much longer history of, I suppose, technology interacting with our tribal tendencies and perhaps making some of those things worse or more difficult or people choosing to be in their information bubble. And then I suppose you can blame the technology. It's not, it's not untrue in a sense that people will use technology um, badly, but it probably is more just a reflection of us as humans. I think a lot, a lot of the kind of, I suppose, online crime you see, it's, it's put out there that, well, the reason why we have this crime is because of the internet. And the reason why you have you know, predators or um, kids looking up bad information is because of the internet. It's like, well, maybe it would have been slightly less accessible without the internet, but it's not really about the internet. It's about those people, those individuals, that kind of like wider societal framework in which they're living. And we, we focus in on the technology rather than like us as humans or what might be the broader issues at stake. I tend to say that the technology is the how, but it's not usually the why. Hmm. So technology is how you get the, the interactions that build people's identities and build polarized tribes. But the why is different. The why is, and you, you know, you can't completely pull the technology out of it because the forms that we do things in also shape how they develop. But the why is much more about the way politics has developed in the last couple of hundred years and the way society has developed and the fact that we are, we're much more atomized and so our identities matter to us much more because we lack a kind of automatic sense of belonging. Yeah, I suppose if the, the, the title book is Technology is Not the Problem, what is the problem? <laughs> well, actually, I mean, the... the I suppose the summary is the problem is us and our obsession with having our identities reflected back to us all the time. Is, is there something though? Is there something very human about that? You know, you, Adam, I think Adam Smith, in famously in the Theory of Moral Sentiments, said, "You know, we we want to be loved and we want to be lovely. It's it, we, we've always had a sense of ourselves and and who we are and our our kind of ego uh, about it." We have, but I think it's taken different forms. And, and it is quite interesting that even today in different societies, it emerges rather differently. I mean, I think we in the West are a very, very individualistic society. And that's come about for a number of reasons. One of which is simply that as 
you know, I mean, I think back like a few hundred years or even less than that. All right. So my, my grand, my mum's mum lived in Grimsby near the docks, uh, in the side of the docks, like there were witches, which one side of the docks was the dockers and the other side was the trawlermen. And they didn't mix because the trawlermen were no better than they should be. You can do this to kids, though. You, you say, red, yes. you say red, your yeah. red team, your but, blue team, and they'll but, fight. But if you'd asked her, who are you, she'd go, well, you know, she'd give you a name and she'd like tell you who she's related to, like husband's name, kids' names, parents' names, where she lives. That's all that is enough. It's like she doesn't, it's not, it's not an issue. She's not going to lie awake at night thinking, but who am I really? Whereas today... Most of us, and you know, make a very sweeping generalization here, but just going comparing me, my life to her life, it's been immensely free. I mean, I can basically live pretty much where I want. I've I've done various different subjects in higher education. <laughs> I've done various different jobs. Uh, I'm socially much more free, like who I have a relationship with, what the relationship is like, whether I have kids, all these things, much more free, which all of which is great, but these freedoms have gone along with breaking down all the automatic ties and bonds and places in society that we could have taken for granted. So we have that sense of, okay, but you know, who am I is a real open question because I could be anybody. And that's why, yeah, along with that freedom, we have that sense of being a bit unmoored and unanchored. And so our, you know, our need to belong and have a sense of who we are which is always in relation to others, becomes this kind of constant open question that we have to answer. Because even when we do settle down with a person, settle down in a place, settle down in a job, we always know that could have been a different person, could have been a different place, could have been a different job. There's a slight arbitrariness about it. I mean, if you really want to go deep, we're just like we're talking about the kind of existentialists and the you know the what, terror, what is the meaning of life? tragedy of being free. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're condemned to be free. It's wonderful that we're more free than any previous generation, but it does bring this. The, the difficulty of finding meaning. Yeah. Well, on that fascinating note uh, and quite a, a excellent discussion, thank you so much um, to Madja Harkness for, for joining the IEA podcast. Um, for those who are just in this, of course, your forthcoming book, Technology Is Not the Problem, will be available in... In May. And available from all good bookstores, including uh, online retailers. Uh, that perhaps should be encouraged if technology isn't the problem. Um, and I look forward to continuing this conversation in future. And for those who are enjoying the IEA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. Uh, and if you'd like to learn more about the IEA's work, just visit iea.org.uk.